of Isaiah today. And uh, Isaiah is a very interesting book. Uh, there's a lot of crazy things that go on in Isaiah. There seems to be a lot of crazy things that God makes Isaiah do. And you'll, you'll find that out as you read the book. But uh, let me ask you this. Have you ever been a part of a group that decided to do the wrong thing? Like as a, as a group together, you decided to rebel or to disobey. Like the group decided that, uh, you know, you didn't necessarily decide it, but the group you were with decided to do something like that. Or maybe you were on a, like you were playing a game, like you were on your team, like sports team or something, and you, uh, your group decided to cheat in some way and keep it to themselves. Anything like that happened to you? Unfortunately. Not something like horrible. Right. I'm not saying I'm not saying you're like agreeing to kill somebody. I'm not saying anything like that. I'm just saying some the something you know is wrong, and you're a part of this group, and your friends decide to to do the wrong thing. How did you respond? Did you go along with it, or did you say no? This isn't right. We shouldn't do this. I don't remember. Luke, your situation. What did you do? It was like like we were supposed to be somewhere, but they went somewhere else. Good job. Okay, so maybe it was a preference, like going to eat at a restaurant or something? No. no, no oh, was that was, really something wrong? Yeah. Okay. Like, uh, it was like, a, like we were supposed to be on... Like, you don't have to incriminate yourself. It's okay. No, we were supposed Dude. to be on a field, but they went somewhere else like, to get like, snacks or something. Oh, okay. And I was like, no, I'm staying on the field. Oh, I see. Okay. Well, good. So, how are you supposed to respond? You're not supposed to go along with you know some with a group of people who are knowingly doing the wrong thing, right? And that, so that's what Isaiah had to deal with in Israel. So he lived through the reigns of at least four different kings in Judah, and he saw the people turn from God to worshiping pagan idols, and he saw the northern kingdom of Israel being conquered by the Assyrians eventually. And he saw their people being taken captive, and he saw their cities being destroyed. And he saw all that in Israel. Remember, Israel, the nation-state of Israel, separated into two kingdoms right before that, right? So you had the northern kingdom of Israel, and then what was the name of the southern kingdom? No. Judah. Judah. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> Judah. So Isaiah saw the idolatry that the northern kingdom was they were getting themselves into and he knew that the same thing was going to happen to Judah if they kept on doing what the northern kingdom of Israel was doing. They they were also beginning to worship idols. Right? So what would it be like to live in a nation that you knew would not last much longer if it continued to reject God? What would you do? Basically what you're doing now, because we pretty much live in a nation that's doing that, right? Uh, Have you ever thought of God as a judge of particular nations in history? I'm sure you have. We've thought about that in this class many times. Uh, Do you think the same thing could happen today with the different nations of the world, the United States, any other nation that apostatizes and goes against God? Well, sure, right? So, now at the same time, no country... Is, was quite like Israel was, right? As a nation, what were they? They were God's chosen people, right? Uh, but many of the is- issues that Isaiah had to face, uh, we also have to face today. 
uh, like the people Isaiah was prophesying about, we as a nation also call evil good and good evil. We have it all turned around. And then we expect at the same time, we expect God not to care about that. And Isaiah shows us what God expects from us in any nation, and he shows us how to confront sin. And a big part of Isaiah is him foretelling the coming of Jesus, who would ultimately die for the sins of the world, and he would usher in a new kingdom like no one else has ever seen, a kingdom that will finally bring peace to the nations. So who was Isaiah? Where did he come from? Well, he was the son of Amos. And you may be thinking, okay, who's that? Well, many people think that he was the brother of Azariah. Uh, And Azariah was the king of Judah at that time. Okay? And so Isaiah lived in the 8th century B.C., probably from 763 to 690 B.C. So he was probably born 13 years after the first Greek Olympic Games and 10 years before the traditional date of the founding of Rome. So all of these things were happening around the same time. And he married a prophetess, Isaiah did, and he had two sons. And forgive me for the pronunciation of these names, because they are very long and hard to say. The first one is Shiershahub. Shiershahub. And that means the remnant will return. That's the name of one of his sons. This next one, you really have to forgive me. Maher Shalahazbaz. Let me try that again. Maher Shalahazbaz. Let me make sure I have it right. Maher Shalahazbaz. Maher Shalahazbaz. That's it, I got it. Maher Shalahazbaz. Y'all say that with me. Maher Shalahazbaz. Yeah. So, why did Isaiah name these two boys these really long names? Well, these really long names meant something. Uh, every time someone is named in the Bible, the name has significance. It has meaning. So, Shier, Shier Jahazbub, I did it wrong. Shier Jazhub, that's it, means the remnant will return. Okay? Keep that in mind. And then, Maher Shadalahazbaz means hastening to the spoil, speeding to the prey. It actually has, means a whole sentence. So why did he do this? Why did he name these names? Well, they have significance prophetically for the kingdom of Judah. And so Isaiah prophesied for many decades in Jerusalem, which was Judah's capital. right? And, and as Isaiah 6 says, uh, in the year that King Uzziah died, what happened to Isaiah? You ever remember Isaiah 6? No? This sermon, this is probably one of the most uh, popular passages that you know, pastors preach from, from the book of Isaiah, besides Isaiah 53. Isaiah 6, he, Isaiah saw the Lord. He saw the Lord high and lifted up on his throne. And uh, the Lord was surrounded by six winged creatures called seraphim. And what did they cry 24 hours a day, day and night? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Right? So Isaiah saw this. And his reaction to this heavenly vision was very, very different uh, than Jonah. What did Isaiah do when the Lord said, I need someone to go for me? 
to go prophesy and preach to Judah. What did Isaiah say? Okay. Okay. Here I am, send me. What did Jonah do when God told him to uh, preach to the Ninevites? The exact opposite. He bolted in a boat when God commanded him to preach to Nineveh. Uh, Isaiah, instead, he says, here I am, send me. And unlike Nineveh, where, I mean, was uh, eventually a no, uh, Noah. Jonah did uh, preach to Nineveh. Was it a successful preaching endeavor? Yeah, right. All of Nineveh was saved. 300,000 people repented in one day, right? Uh, did the same thing happen to Isaiah? Isaiah was willing. Here I am, send me. And he eventually went out to Judah and. By, uh, by our definition, it was not a successful mission. No. Uh, Isaiah preached to a stiff-necked people who were blind and who were deaf to the preaching of the gospel. And they were ultimately unrepentant in their hearts. And the book of Hebrews in the New Testament says that Isaiah was eventually sawn in half during the persecution of King Manasseh. When, according to 2 Kings 21.16, he filled Jerusalem like a bath with innocent blood. So ultimately, Isaiah paid for uh, uh, his preaching with his life. Uh, yeah, I know. Alive, alive, right? And Wait, you know, it's half, like half or half. Doesn't matter. Just wondering. Well, one. Yeah, like, prob- it's probably easier to do it yeah. this way. Your school is quite hard to do. I don't know. Uh, either you way, it's pretty rough. And it's not like it's a. Power saw and get it over really, w- to get it over with it's really quickly. Up. These are people doing well, this number. Yeah, probably, but I mean, he was still sawn in half. Doesn't mean he lived through the entire thing. He was. I'm sure eventually. I'm sure over. I'm sure after a few cuts, he lost consciousness. I would think. That yeah, that would be crazy. So anyway, so eventually Isaiah paid for uh, all of what he was doing with his life. The the Israelites, the the people of Judah, didn't want to hear it. And so Isaiah has been called the evangelical prophet because he preached so bluntly against the the kings who were compromised and the religious leaders. And he, he was called the evangelical prophet because he saw that Jesus the Messiah, he saw that this Messiah coming uh, and redeeming Israel from their exile and their sin. So why is the book of Isaiah so important? Now, I know it's in the Bible, so that automatically deems it important. But the book of Isaiah is one of the most important prophetic books in Scripture uh, and it contains so many different literary forms and, and all of these themes in it that reading it can kind of be like watching a movie where the scenes switch from blood and guts of the battlefield immediately to laughing and partying at a banquet table. Like there are a lot of different scenes and themes going on in Isaiah. And Isaiah fulfills the role of a prophet and a preacher and and he wanted to comfort the afflicted, and he wanted to afflict the comfortable. And as Isaiah 1.4 says, it says, God brought Israel up as his children, but his children did not know him. And Israel deserted and ignored God like a rebellious teenager. And 
with that being said, if, if your kids re- rebel against you, you know, as God's children did to him, how could a holy God stand for that type of injustice among his own people? And how could he stand for that type of evil among his own children? And Isaiah, as Isaiah one twenty one says, How the faithful city has become a harlot. It was full of injustice. Righteousness lodged in it, but now murderers. You know, we're kind of ha- we have a conflict here, right? Imagine you had a child who, you know, was by all intents and purposes your son. You know, you love your son, right? But your son is a brat, and he is rebelling against you at every twist and turn. No matter how much you've disciplined him, no matter how much you've spanked him, no matter how much you've taken away privileges and blessings, he is still rebelling against you and he is just incorrigible. Uh, and what do you do? What is the ultimate, how, what do you, how do you handle that situation? Well, that was a situation God was in, right? How could God wipe out his own chosen nation who had the promises of Abraham, uh, who had the promises of Isaac and, and Jacob and David, and at the same time, you know, this adds another element of complexity to it. Didn't God promise that, uh, it, that the Messiah would come through Israel? How can the Messiah come through Israel uh, when there is no Israel? Right? What does God do to nations that rebel against Him? Eventually. Even his chosen nation. What does he do? Destroys them. Well, in order for... He already promised that the Messiah would come through Israel. But Israel, they're acting like a a bunch of jerks. What does he do? How do you handle that? On on the one hand, you need to be destroyed because of your wickedness and your your unrepentant heart. But on the other hand, I already promised that the Messiah was going to come through you. So... Here's, it's a conflict, right? Well, he could either keep the, keep the promises going and just put up with Israel's rebellion, but that's not God's way, right? He can't put up with sin. He can't put up with wickedness, right? But at the same time, how could he just wipe them out? There won't be a Messiah coming from Israel. He could make the Messiah come real quick, and then he would destroy Israel. There you go. Bing, there he is. <laughs> right. Well, that's not quite how God did it. Uh, and and uh, it's interesting that this dilemma continues into the New Testament when God would again have to deal with the Jews who had once again turned away from him. You know, suppose a great king had promised his kingdom to his only son, if only he would be faithful, and yet the son took his inheritance and gambled it and wasted it away. How could the king continue to be just and still give the kingdom to his son like he promised? And yet, if he disinherited his son from the throne, how could he then fulfill his obligation to his people to provide an heir to rule over them? See, God chose Israel as his special people and promised Abraham that through his seed, all the families of the earth would be blessed. And if God wiped out Israel, then Abraham's people would be gone, no more. And the seed of David would be gone. And the Messiah can't come from Israel if there is no Israel. But every Israelite knew that God's holy, and and they know that God cannot let sin run unchecked. So there's the tension. 
And and it's Isaiah that relieves this tension by explaining that there will be a remnant. There's the solution. There will be a remnant. Now, what's a remnant? When you hear the word remnant, what comes to mind? A remainder, right, right. So out of, you know, out of a whole apple pie, if you eat 90% of it, 10% will be the remnant left on the plate. It's kind of one way to describe it, right? So God, as a whole, uh, would destroy apostate Israel, but there would be a few faithful Israelites that God would keep, that, and they're not going to see the wrath of God, and they are going to be the ones who would once again return and build up the nation of Israel. And every, everybody outside of the remnant who were unfaithful and rebellious to the Lord, they're going to be judged and destroyed. And that's exactly what God did. But God kept His promises to the faithful few Israelites to build the nation. And, and it was out of that remnant that the Messiah came. So Isaiah explained that to us. And the Apostle Paul picks up this talk of Israel in his explanation of divine election and God's relationship with the Jews in Romans 9-11. through 11. Uh, He tells us that the Jews were not owed salvation simply because they were circumcised in the flesh. Uh, you know, what does what the sign of circumcision point to for a Jew? It points that they're Jewish, right? That it, it points out that they are the chosen people and other people who aren't circumcised are not, right? That's the mark of being Jewish. And Paul was saying in Romans 9 through 11 that just because they were uh, circumcised and that they were Jewish, that didn't mean that they were entitled to salvation automatically, right? Paul even says that they are not all Israel who are of Israel. So in other words, being religious on the outside doesn't necessarily mean that you have love for the Lord in your heart. And like Paul is doing in Romans, Isaiah is doing in his book. He's attacking hypocrisy, and he's attacking presumption. Well, I'm circumcised, so that must mean I have the promises automatically. Without any, I don't have to be faithful to the Lord in the way he prescribes, because I am a Jew. I am of the chosen people. No, God says that's presumptuous. That's assuming something you don't have. So in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah is uh, also prophesying that, uh, that Jesus will come to the Gentile nations, to those that are outside of the circumcision, and he will graft them in into uh, his chosen people. And, of course, these prophecies were fulfilled at the cross and in the beginnings of the New Testament church at Pentecost in the book of Acts. And the apostle John specifically says that Jesus fulfilled the prophecies of Isaiah and that the prophets saw Jesus' glory and spoke of him. Now, in fact, out of the 66 chapters in Isaiah, 47 chapters are directly quoted or alluded to in the New Testament multiple times, making Isaiah one of the most quoted books by Jesus and by the New Testament writers. Bonus points, who, what is the most quoted Old Testament book in the New Testament? Want to take a guess? What is the most quoted Old Testament book in the New Testament? Isaiah. Isaiah, no. It's one of them. Anybody else? Uh, Paul, Huh? 
Leviticus, um, Deuteronomy, or Exodus. Okay. Uh, I'm just going to get consensus. I'm going to say which one's the Genesis. right answer. Genesis. Good guess, but no. Psalms. It is Psalms. Yes. Psalms is the most quoted. Right. Uh, but all of those are, are quoted a lot, too. Okay. <clears throat> and, and Isaiah is quoted a whole bunch as well. All right. So I'm going to go back to the question I asked earlier, uh, talking about that, that group that decided to do the wrong thing. All right. How would you deal with that if you were with this group and they all decided to do this bad thing? Just tell them not to do it, and if they didn't listen, then they... Yeah, you would try to persuade them away from compromising, Right. So anyone who's ever been in a situation where everybody's doing the wrong thing, uh, and, and how many of us have been in a situation like that, and you kind of feel pressure to go along with the crowd, right? Maybe some of y'all don't have that, that, that impediment, but many of us do, right? It's hard to go uh, along uh, or, or to go against something that everybody else is for, Right? Does that make sense? I'm looking like I'm talking to a wall. Okay, making sure. All right, good. It's hard to resist because peer pressure is hard to resist. Uh, you know, but it's one thing if it's a small group of your friends uh, compromising. But what if it's your whole church compromising, and you're the only one that's like, "This is wrong. We shouldn't do this." I mean, I would feel like I was the wrong one. You would do what? I feel like I would be. Yeah, the church because like, the church was the one. Everyone in the church was saying that. Right, and you would feel like, well, if everybody has this different opinion, maybe I'm wrong. Yeah. You know, maybe maybe I don't understand what's going on here. Obviously not if it if it completely contradicts what the Bible says. But sure. If it's like like a like a um, controversy, like baptizing, maybe. Like sure. If the whole church didn't believe that, and I was the only one who believed that, I would probably think you'd I would question it. Yeah. Sure. Absolutely. But you're talking about like more cut and dry stuff would be a lot easier. Yeah. Hey, let's worship Baal. Okay. And you're just like, oh, the Bible obviously says thou shalt have no other gods before me. That's an easy one. Right? But in one sense, what if, you know, all the only friends you had were your church friends and family. And they're all going doing this, you know, this stupid thing. Well, what do you do? Will you still feel pressure to want to somehow kind of compromise and put one foot here and one foot here and try to balance things out. There would be a pressure to do that. Hopefully, you, you, in the end, you wouldn't succumb to that, right? So that's your church. What if it's the whole nation, including well, everybody that's... including everybody in your church? Everyone's going to be destroyed. You're the only one. Mm. Everyone's going to be destroyed. If it completely contradicts the Bible, no, but... That'd be very, very, very hard. The whole nation. Let's worship Baal. And your church like, yes, let's worship Baal. Well. Your governor, let's worship Baal. The mayor, let's worship Baal. Yeah. And you were the, the only one. Huh? I don't think the church was what they that. did, though. Wait, how did you move? You don't have any money except for like... But they did do that. Isaiah thought he was the only one who was faithful to God in the whole entire nation. He thought he was it. The entire nation went to go worship Baal. That's the, scary. the church, I mean, you know, the, temp, the, the, the temple, the civil leaders. But it's hard to have friends. Everybody. He did not have any friends. He lived a very lonely and miserable life until he was sawn in half. Cool. Yeah. He just had a really bad life. He, now his friend was his other half. He was it. Yeah. So, what if, he, I'll add another interesting 
plot twist here. What if you're the only one who believes what you believe, who is going to be faithful to the Lord, and what would you do if God told you on top of all of that, you are going to be an illustration for these people. I'm going to, through you, show these people how they've sinned against me. And what if he told you to go naked and barefoot for three years as a sign that God would destroy the United States? That's your job. God told you, take off all your clothes and your shoes, and you have to walk around naked around the town for three years. I would have gotten arrested. You would have gotten arrested. Isaiah did. That's exactly what God told Isaiah to do. And he did that for three years. And he got in a lot of trouble. Or, and a lot of people thought he was crazy. Right? If you saw some, some person walking around without clothes on, you would immediately call the cops and say, he is crazy. Right? Yeah. That's, what they, that's what they thought. Right? But God told Isaiah to do that. Why did God ask Isaiah to do that? I have no idea. It was fine. To show that Israel will be... Yeah, exactly. So Old Testament prophets, they were called by God to do some crazy stuff. Some really, sometimes really exciting things. That I wouldn't be very excited to do, right? But they're asked to do some crazy things. And they did and said things that confused people and upset a lot of people. And all of these things, uh, you know, that was a part of their ministry. They were prophesying to these people. You know, prophets came from all walks of life. You know, we have high up elite priests like Ezekiel. He was a prophet. We have kings like King David. He was a prophet. We have judges like Deborah. She was a prophet. And then we have, you know, lowly Amos, who was a shepherd. You know, he wasn't a king. He didn't have any notoriety. And, and he was a prophet too. And, and while some of these prophets appeared for a very short time and not many people knew much about them, other prophets like Isaiah interacted with kings. He talked directly to kings and leaders, and everybody knew him. And uh, Isaiah and other uh, prophets publicly proclaimed the fate of nations. And sometimes the prophets appeared in a very shocking and dramatic way, you know, like Isaiah going naked and barefoot for three years. So, <clears throat> because, and, and we ask again, why would God make Isaiah do that? Well, because by being naked and barefoot, Isaiah revealed the shame and the poverty and the weakness that will overtake Egypt and Ethiopia when the Assyrians conquer them. So he wasn't just prophesying to Judah. He was prophesying to Egypt, and he was prophesying to Ethiopia as well. So God told a story using Isaiah as an illustration. He's a visual for this story, right? Not a very pleasing visual. So God told a story through Isaiah's offensive words, through his actions, and he used those actions to reveal the truly offensive thing. See, the most offensive thing wasn't that Isaiah was running around naked. No, the, the truly offensive thing was that the sins of the people uh, and how they were acting towards God, that was the truly offensive thing. And uh, because it's them robbing the poor and ripping off widows and lusting after money and perverting justice in the courts, those things are the things that are truly disgusting to God, not Isaiah's nakedness. And just as Isaiah experienced God's holiness and a disgust for sin in Isaiah 6, in his vision and looking at the Lord on his throne, 
God commands Israel to be holy. As Leviticus 11.44 says, it says, For I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am holy. Now, remember, being holy for an Israelite, uh, just like for us, doesn't mean that one couldn't sin. Right? You're already, if, you're, if you're in Christ, you're holy. Does that mean that you have stopped sinning completely? No, unfortunately not. And if it means that, then God would have given this commandment for nothing, right? For no one is good. No, not one. But what God wanted for Israel was for them to come back to holiness. To, uh, that means that they needed to confess their sins of worshiping uh, false gods. They needed to confess their sins of ripping people off and lusting after money and lusting after each other. And they needed to confess those sins and they needed to repent of those sins and turn away from them. And forsaking unholiness and unrighteousness by faith brings a person and a whole nation back into fellowship with God, back into His holiness, right? And that's what we need to do in our nation as well on a national scale. Now, even though Isaiah preaches judgment here, uh, there is still hope. Uh, He also preaches salvation. He preaches salvation for the Israelites right then and there. And he preaches salvation for those further down the road. You know, God made a promise to save Israel. And Isaiah said that God will be faithful to his promises. That's why the last third of the book describes the reign of the Messiah, the one who will bring peace to Israel and who is going to draw all the nations to himself. And God promises to send out his elect ones who with the Spirit will finally bring justice to the entire world, to every nation. You know, we just got finished singing joy to the world this Christmas, right? Joy to the world, the Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. God promised that in the book of Isaiah. And we have seen it come to pass in in the coming of our Messiah. And we're seeing it right now come to pass as the kingdom of God makes its way across the entire world. And in chapters 52 and 53 of Isaiah, we read of the suffering servant who would endure the worst of punishments and grief for our transgressions. And the restoration of the image of God in man and the messianic reign can only come through the atoning death of that Messiah. And it's this sacrifice that redeems the world. Check this out. Isaiah 54 verse 1 says, Sing, O barren one, who did not bear. Break forth into singing and cry aloud, you who have uh, not been in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of her who is married, says the Lord. Now what does this mean? Well, Isaiah is saying that Jerusalem is like a woman who can't have children until the Messiah comes and redeems her. And does that make sense? Like the, the, the nation of Israel is impotent. They cannot uh, be a powerful force in converting the world without her Messiah. Right? She cannot bear any children of the kingdom without her Messiah. And it's this waiting, it's this anticipation that Isaiah is bringing out. And, and the Apostle Paul quotes this passage in Galatians 4. He gives us the meaning of this Old Testament passage. How many of y'all know that the New Testament is like a commentary to the Old Testament? 
if we want to understand more of, uh, of what uh, God is telling us in the Old Testament, where do we go? We go to the New Testament. Because a lot of times the, the, the New Testament writers are explaining what the Old Testament passages mean. And Paul does this with Isaiah in Galatians 4. And he refers to the Jerusalem, which is free, and the mother of us all. Y'all know that Israel is our mother? That makes sense? Yeah, it's Paul that explains this in the New Testament. It's the new Jerusalem where both Jews and Gentiles live under the reign of King Jesus, where both the uh, circumcised and the uncircumcised live under the reign of King Jesus. And Isaiah 65, 17 describes this new Jerusalem. It says this, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. What a wonderful passage of scripture here. It says, through Jesus Christ, we live in the new heavens and the new earth. Now, is this the final culmination of the new heavens and new earth? Of course not. No, it's being remade. It's being made new as we speak, like I talked about this morning in chapel. And like Israel, we build houses and we live in them. And like Israel, we plant vineyards and we eat of their fruit. Right now, the Lord has begun to make the new heavens and the new earth, and we are dwelling in it right now. And that's why Isaac Watts wrote that tune, Joy to the World, Let Earth Receive Her King. See, the Messiah has come. And the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. You know, things don't look that great on a national scale right now, right? And it it certainly doesn't look like the new Jerusalem is dawning. Uh, And Isaiah also felt that tension because it looked similar to this when Israel was being unfaithful. And, and And just when it looked like Israel would be completely annihilated and completely destroyed, what did God do? God saved a faithful remnant. That the 10% of the pie is still there, right? And, and they would survive and ultimately become a new Israel. That would include us, the Gentiles. And, and God is still just. He still dealt with sin, the sins of Israel and Judah. And He's still the justifier. He justifies us before God through Christ. So unfaithful Israelites were cut off. And the true Israel remains. And we are a part of that true Israel. We are the chosen people. And right now, in these last days, Isaiah's words are fulfilled. And they continue to be fulfilled as all nations flow to the house of the Lord. Uh, and Isaiah uh, 2.3 says this. It says, And many people shall come and say, Come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his way, and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. That's great news, right? Yes, thank you. Yes, let's pray and let's thank God for that great news. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the salvation that you've given to us. Father, thank you for grafting us in uh, uh, into this wonderful covenant with all of these wonderful promises. And Father, let us each and every Lord's day, each and every day of our lives, go up to the mountain of the Lord and to the house of the Lord, the God of Jacob. Lord, teach us your ways that we may walk in your paths. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.